Within the entire universe, there are few things more powerful than the sun. It's so enormous that you could put the Earth into the sun 1.3 million times. Its energy provides the equivalent of just under 3 trillion light bulbs, and it is essentially one enormous source of raw nuclear energy. And yet, the sun is not as powerful as God's glory. However, God's glory and the sun do in some aspects share certain attributes. And so one way in order to better understand God's glory is to see the similarities between the two. For example, both God and the sun are a source of life. We can get that slide up. God is the source of life and he's a creator. And we see him creating things multiple times in the Bible. And in the same way, without the heat and light that the sun provides, mankind would not be able to survive on earth. Secondly, God is all-powerful. And so also is the sun. As we said before, it is simply just raw nuclear energy. And it gives off three trillion worth, uh, light bulbs worth of energy. So both of these are very, very powerful. Thirdly, God's glory and the sun can also be deadly. Now, that seems contradictory considering the first attribute they both have in common is they're a source of life. But they can both be a source of life and potentially deadly at the same time. For example, uh, God's glory is so good that anything impure or imperfect in its presence is simply destroyed. And in the same way, if anything gets too close to the proximity of the sun, it'll be consumed before it even gets to it. Fourthly, they both cause sinners to feel fear or to fear ashamed. God's glory and perfection reveals our imperfections, our sin and our flaws. And as a result, we can feel afraid or ashamed. The Bible often talks of it as being exposed and naked before God. He sees everything we do, and because of that we feel guilty because he sees all of our sins. And in the same way, if someone's to do something uh, that they know is evil, chances are they're not going to do it in broad daylight, but they'll do it in the dark of night when the sun cannot expose them. But even the sun cannot match the sheer power of God's glory. There are certain attributes of God's glory that the sun simply does not have. For example, God's glory is transfer uh, transferable. God's glory is so powerful that it physically manifests itself, and those simply standing in its presence become enshrouded by it. For example, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, as he comes back down from the mountain, his face is glowing with God's glory, simply by being in God's presence. The angels also, they're always described as being bright and radiant and full of light. And, in this, and that is also because they are always in God's presence. And finally, God's glory displays his name and his character. Moses once asked God, show me your glory. And God's response was, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And these are all attributes of God's glory. And there are probably a lot more because it's such a complex concept to understand. But these are the ones essential for us in order to learn and to be able to understand what the glory paradox truly is. And the paradox begins with God's desire to dwell with his creation. 
God always has this desire to be with his creation, to be able to walk and talk, communicate and have a relationship with his creations. And we first see this in the Garden of Eden. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, we can first see this. Genesis chapter 2, and we'll just look at verse 25 very quickly while we're here. Genesis 2, 25, and this is talking about Adam and Eve, and it says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now Adam and Eve, it says here, they were both naked and exposed, yet they felt no shame. And this is most likely because, like the angels, they were enshrouded with God's glory uh, because they were in his presence all the time. And so while naked, they felt no shame. And so God reveals to us in the Garden of Eden his ideal plan for how he wants to dwell in his creation. He's able to communicate directly to Adam and Eve, and he's able to walk, talk, communicate, and build a solid relationship with his creation. But we all know, of course, that that plan and this perfect ideal got thwarted. And we can read this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed big leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice once again, as soon as they sin and they become imperfect or impure, they feel nakedness and shame. They feel exposed and they actually just want to hide from God. And it says they try to sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. And that's why they feel this shame, because they have sinned. And so now God faces a dilemma. He faces the glory paradox. Because nothing sinful or impure can ever be within God's presence. But now mankind, as a result of their disobedience to God, has become sinful. So what is God to do? He's forced to expel Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, and now the rest of mankind forever is going to be separated from God as a result of sin. God's glory is so good that sinners cannot be with him, and that includes us. And so God makes a promise to Adam and Eve to solve the glory paradox, to reconcile his people back to him, and to bridge the gap that sin has caused. He promises a Messiah who will come, who will take them at their place, and who will bridge the gap between sin. And we get a hint of this in verse 21, when he says, And also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. In order for God to have made those tunics of skin, he would have had to have killed a lamb. And so God promises a Messiah, and he also promises a lamb who will take the sin, the sacrifice, the penalty that Adam and Eve rightly deserved. The wages of sin is death, and someone had to die, and Adam and Eve rightfully so deserved that punishment, and yet God provided a substitute for them, the lamb. And this lamb would come, he would take the price, the punishment that mankind deserved, and bridge the gap between the glory paradox. But... While God had already started to begin the plan of salvation, he had already also come up with temporary solutions to still dwell with his creation. He still had this desire to dwell with mankind, even though he could not immediately, and the Messiah was yet to come. 
And we see this in the building of the tabernacle. Now the word tabernacle literally means a dwelling place. And so God instructed Moses to build a tent in which his presence could be and his glory could be. And that way he could dwell with his people, though indirectly. Now in Moses' time, there were, there were, the Israelites were a nomadic people, so the tabernacle was in the form of a tent. But later on, it would be built into the sanctuary, and eventually the same uh, blueprints would be used to build Solomon's temple. And all of these had the exact same idea. And all three, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, and the temple, consisted of three main parts. In the outer part, there was the outer, part, uh, the outer courtyard, where all the sacrifices took place. And this was the same idea of what had happened in the Garden of Eden, that a lamb would be killed in place of a person for their sins. And so the whole idea of the tabernacle and temple was yet again another sign of the promise that God had made to mankind, that he would reconcile them to him. And then inside we have the, mo- uh, the holy place where the rest of the priestly conducts would take place. And within that was the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant, and we are told God's glory itself, would be. Now, because God's glory was always in the tabernacle, the priest could only enter the most holy place once a year during the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was another festival which indicated the passing of sin onto the Lamb and salvation once again. But in order for the priest to be able to go into the most holy place, he had to be first morally and ritually clean. Now, morally clean is an easy concept to grasp. The priest simply had to kill the lamb and have it as a sacrifice atoning for his sins, and he had to be morally pure. But ritual cleanliness is something that is not as relevant to us anymore today because we don't have a priestly system. So it's a bit of a harder concept for us to grasp. But essentially, one could become ritually unclean if they touched anything dead or sick or diseased. That was basically how one could become unclean. And being ritually unclean also didn't mean that you had done anything wrong, like with moral uncleanliness. God had just simply put in rules for the Israelites in order for them to be able to determine the difference between the sacred and everything else. And so God was reiterating this idea that when in his glory, one has to be pure. And only then can someone enter. So once the priest had made himself uh, morally and ritually clean, he was able to go into the most holy place into the very room where the Ark of the Covenant and God's glory was. But just in case, the high priest also had a rope attached to their leg in the case that while in there they died, they could be taken out uh, without anyone else having to go in after them. And we actually see a little bit more detail of what God has intended for the tabernacle and sanctuary in Exodus 20 and verse 26, if you turn with me there. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 26. Twenty and verse twenty-six, and he says, "Nor shall you go up, uh, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it." And once again, we see this reiteration of this theme of being naked and exposed before God and having all of our sins before him. And so God's saying, in order for you to be able to come up to the altar, he's saying, uh, you have to be morally and ritually clean. Otherwise, I'm going to see all of your sin and impurities and imperfections, and that can't be within my presence. 
And so for a long time, this was how God was to dwell with his people. He was able to be with them, but he was also a very indirect way of dwelling with them. It wasn't the same way that he was able to dwell with them in the Garden of Eden, where he could walk and talk, communicate, and build a personal relationship, relationship with everyone. This is a very indirect way, but he was still able to dwell with his creation. This was just a temporary solution until the full solution came about. And we see a little hint towards this, uh, the next step in solving the glory paradox in a vision of Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and we begin in verse 5. And the context behind this story is, Isaiah has just been taken up into heaven in a vision. Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll start reading in verse 5. And this is Isaiah speaking. He says, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah recognizes he shouldn't be here. He's right before the throne of God. He's seen, as he says, the King of kings, the Lord of hosts. And he says, I'm unclean. I shouldn't be here. Isaiah is convinced that any second now he's going to die because he's sinful and impure and he's within God's presence and in God's glory. Let's keep reading on in verses 6 and 7 though. Then one of the seraphim, which is an angel, flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. And this is interesting, you wouldn't necessarily uh, pick this out as a unique verse, but... Think back again to the idea of cleanliness and uncleanliness with the priests. For example, if a priest were to touch a dead carcass, the uncleanliness of the carcass would come to him. The cleanliness of the priest would not be transferred to the dead object. And in the same way, you'd expect this to happen with the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah says, I'm unclean, and a hot coal is supposedly clean. And yet when the hot coal touches Isaiah... The coal does not become unclean, but he becomes clean. As the angel says, his iniquity is taken away and his sin is purged. And so we see this reversal of a paradigm. We see a change of this paradigm in that now something clean can make the unclean pure. And so this is yet again another step that God promises to solve the word paradox. If we are sinful and mankind is in an impure state, God promises to then make us pure once again. And it's not until a few hundred years later we begin to see the fulfillment of the promise that he made to Adam and Eve and to Isaiah. And this is through God made man, Jesus Christ. God came down to earth and he became a man and he dwelt with us very similarly to the way he did in the Garden of Eden. Jesus was able to walk and talk, be able to communicate and make direct relationships with those around him. And uh, while here, he was able to communicate in a way that he had previously been unable to through the tabernacle and the sanctuary. And we see Jesus fulfill the very promise of Isaiah's vision all throughout his ministry. All throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus approaches the sick, the diseased, and even the dead. 
And yet you'd expect the uncleanliness of those people to transfer to Jesus. And yet when Jesus touches them, he makes them pure. He makes them clean. We see the fulfillment of Isaiah's vision that the unclean become clean. Not only that, but Jesus also demonstrates all of the attributes of God's glory. For example, the first one that we looked at was God as a source of life. We see countless times Jesus bringing back the dead to life. Or even the fact that his very plan, the very, the very reason that he came down to earth was to give mankind life through his death, burial and resurrection. It was only through that that mankind was then able to achieve eternal life. And so we see once again that God, Jesus is a source of life. We're also told that Jesus has the same powerful abilities as God and that he was the creator of everything. Turn with me to John chapter 1 as we can read this about Jesus. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and we'll begin in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And we know that the Word is Jesus because if we read down in verse 14, it describes the Word becoming flesh on earth. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. And if we continue reading verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So in those four verses, we see once again Jesus being a source of life, to mankind, but also his sheer power as a creator. Everything that has been made was made through him. We also even see that Jesus and his glory at times was even deadly. For example, when the Roman soldiers came to Jesus and came to arrest him and they asked him, Are you Jesus? He, all, he said the words, I am, and all of the soldiers fell back uh, just because Jesus had said the very name of God. Jesus also caused sinners to, fear, to feel fear or to feel ashamed. For example, we read in verses 10 and 11 in the same chapter, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Now why did his own not receive him? Because many people felt ashamed whenever they were in his presence. Jesus says later on in the following chapters, he says, Those who like the darkness hate the light because the light exposes their sin. Once again, the idea of being naked and exposed before God. No one likes the feeling of being vulnerable. And so when Jesus confronted certain people, while others were willing to admit their sin and their guilt, others could not deal with that shame and instead became defiant. And as it says, did not accept the light of the world, which was Jesus. We also see again that God's glory is transferable through Jesus. We read in verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And if we go to chapter 12 in the same book, we can get a bit more context as to what this truly means. John chapter 12, and beginning in verse 35. John chapter 12, verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, which is Jesus, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And so Jesus is saying, while I'm here, you are sons of light. And then it's that aspect, once again, of being children of God, being children of light, and having God's glory be transferable. Now, we don't see it physically manifest in the same way that we do in, with the angels or in the Garden of Eden. But it's the concept of the light. Remember, the light was the life of men, it said in uh, chapter 1. And so the disciples were given the gospel message of eternal life to give to the people around them. And even today, we also have that same light. We still have that eternal life and that gospel to tell of other people. And finally, God's glory displays God's name and character. Jesus' very name, Emmanuel, literally means God with us, which is very similar to the idea of the word tabernacle, meaning a dwelling. God always wants to be with us, whether it's in the Garden of Eden, whether it's through the tabernacle, dwelling with creation, or whether it's through Jesus, God with us, God always wants to be with his creation. And in fact, it emphasises God dwelling with his creation as he had originally intended. Jesus, throughout his entire ministry, also continually showed compassion, mercy and love, displaying the true character of God for all to see. And so in every way, Jesus is the solution to the glory paradox. Through his death, burial and resurrection, when he took upon all the sins of the world, he was able to do just the same thing that the Lamb had done in the Garden of Eden, and that the countless lambs that had been sacrificed in the tabernacle also did. They took the punishment of sin for an individual so that that person could then be reconciled to God. The punishment had been paid, and now the guilty could walk away innocent. And now all we have to do is accept that sacrifice that he made. But Jesus was not only the lamb in the Garden of Eden or in the tabernacle. He wasn't only the one who died on the cross for us or even the hot coal that makes the unclean clean. He's also our high priest who, uh, who does his priestly ministry for us in the heavenly sanctuary, interceding for us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4 as we read about Jesus' ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. Hebrews chapter 4. And we begin in verse 13. Hebrews 4 verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Notice once again this recurring theme all throughout the Bible of nakedness and being exposed before God because God's glory is so good, it reveals our imperfections. But here's the good news, the good part of this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the plea that God gives us. Isaiah was given the same opportunity. He was before the throne of God, and all he had to do was cry out to God, and God made him pure once again. God was then able to look upon him as though he had not sinned, 
as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we finish, we'll finish off by reading in Revelation 22 as God finally finishes his work in solving the glory paradox by finally reconciling mankind to him. Revelation chapter 22. After God returns and brings back his people to be with him in heaven, they will be made new again, they will be made pure, and finally they will be able to be in God's presence once again in the new heaven and in the new Eden. We re- uh, Revelation 22 and verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there, they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. In every way, Jesus is the solution to the glory paradox. Jesus presents us with the opportunity to be able today and to be able to do it all over again in our lives, countless times, to accept that sacrifice of Jesus, to accept the blood that he spilt for us on the cross, and to accept the eternal life and salvation that he gives us. And until that day when he takes us to be with him again in heaven, we should always have our hearts and minds constantly thinking of this sacrifice, being thankful and trying to live a life in accordance with God. And then finally one day we will be taken to a place where we no longer need any light of the sun, but instead a place where we will be enshrouded by God's glory.